a regulatory regime that is favorable to crypto. I think this is a necessity for it to work long-term. I think it will work long-term. I don't know if it'll take a year or five years or 50 years. Again, I don't really care. I think it's inevitable, like Bitcoin and crypto will outlast the you know, United States of America. Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains and the go-to place for everybody to learn about the latest innovations in Web3, NFTs, and the decentralized web. Join us each week to hear from experts, entrepreneurs, and the early stage investors that are building the future on the blockchain. Not only will this podcast help you understand why these emerging technologies are so important, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the metaverse. GMGM, welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast. My name is Josh Gordon, I'm your host, and today we've got a great guest. He's been a builder in the Web2 world from the, a social media perspective, also has ex- lots of experience with the creator economy, and now is experimenting with dApps, NFTs, and building a Web3. Sahil Lavingia, thank you so much for joining the Unstoppable Pod today. I'm excited to talk to you about all things crypto. How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. I look forward to these podcasts every week. And I've had this one especially highlighted on my list. I just think the the way that you speak on Twitter is so like articulate and concise and being able to bring some of that like brain power and also just your extensive experience to this conversation has been something I've been looking forward to. I think it was actually might have been this morning as I was doing some just my general Twitter research and, and reading. I think you had a tweet that said, anyone can teach by learning in public. And that resonated with me because I feel like this podcast is its goal is to be educational about Web3 and crypto. And, you know, I am going through my learning experience in public during these interviews. So like that, that really hit the, the nail on the head and exactly what I'm hoping to get out of this interview with you. Awesome. Well, let's just jump right on in. I want to ask you just like straight up, is Web3 the next big thing in tech? The is a is a strong word. Anytime I see the word the, I always try to th- replace it with an A. I sort of think that keeps me humble about sort of my, my own sort of heart set opinions. And so I think it's a big thing. One of the bit next big things in tech, I think there are so many things to look forward to in the future. Decentralization, privacy, Web3, all of that stuff for sure, but also self-driving cars, AI. There's there's just so much to get excited about. Uh, you know, all, all the stuff happening around supply chain, what what Tesla's been up to, what SpaceX is up to. I mean, I think the the sort of we're at the beginning of infinity and I think 100 years from now we're going to look back and and you know, the world will be pretty unrecognizable in large part due to crypto because I think sort of this sort of reinvention of the capital markets is 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 a necessary component of all the other technology right like uh, the startup industry only works because of equity financing which was did not exist in in 1776 it was kind of invented in new york and so i think there's sort of yeah crypto in a sense will kind of undergird a lot of the a lot of the other changes and, and it's sort of a a necessary but not sufficient kind of prerequisite i think yeah no totally and i've been spending some time thinking about that too like I worked in VR and AI before kind of my current role right now around crypto and NFTs and and seeing the kind of the other side of what some of these tech movements look like. You know, there is a lot to be done. There is a lot to be excited about. But at least in my bubble, it appears to be that there isn't as much excitement around it online as there is around like these NFTs and some of the crypto projects we're seeing like VR and, and self-driving is is important, but are you seeing the same level of energy around it online? I'm certainly not online. I mean, I think ultimately, you know, people are pretty simple creatures. There's sort of two kinds of games that we play, status game and wealth games. And I think crypto is, and especially kind of NFTs, is kind of like the the sort of, you know, one plus one equals 500 there. And so I think you just see this level of online engagement and sort of the all of these social and sort of financial incentives point to this massive kind of, you know, sort of overdrive in terms of sort of the consumption. But in general, I would say, you know, in terms, you know, ultimately, the bottleneck for innovation is not how many people are tweeting about something, right? The, the bottleneck is, 
people like Hayden Adams and Vitalik Buterin and Elon Musk, like those are, the, you know, and all, and all of the people who who build alongside those those folks. And I would say that there's crypto has plenty of them, but so does Web2, so does Web1, so does AI, so does robotics. You know, robotics will be absolutely massive. Biotech, I think, will be absolutely massive in the next hundred years. Unfortunately, you know, I've thought about, you know, tweeting about synthetic wombs is certainly one way to get people excited about some of these other issues. Ultimately, you know, the, the, the thing that I think a lot of these other industries can learn from crypto is, is how do you galvanize people? How do you get people excited about the technology that you're building, even though it may be several years out? I think one of those ways is to incentivize people to give them effectively equity in what you're doing early, and then they can participate in the upside. So I think there's, there's certainly like reasons, you know, for, for that. And I think certain industries, you know, could, you know, I, I always point to the example of Elon Musk because he only started using Twitter in I think something like 2015, 2016 which is a lot later than you would think, given how good he is at it and how important Twitter is for Tesla. Tesla basically faced bankruptcy, probably would have gone out of business in 2017, 2018 without his very public Twitter persona, right? And so imagine that two years before that, he didn't even have a Twitter account. And this is, by the way, like everyone in tech had a Twitter account. He was kind of like the laggard in, the, in this way. And so, you know, I, I just think it sort of goes to show the importance of, of, of someone embracing social media and like I think that's sort of like the macro trend that everyone should really be paying attention to, which is every individual can build an audience and talk directly to kind of all the stakeholders. And that can be incredibly powerful. I mean, you're seeing this in the war in Ukraine with with what uh, the president of Ukraine has been up to. Right. Like this is kind of like a whole new war kind of kind of war, uh, sort of a social media economic war, and it's power. Right. It's influence. It's power. It's sort of soft power. But uh, it can be incredibly effective in, in getting sort of whatever you want to want to get done done. Totally, totally, yeah. And it's int- the thing about Elon is interesting too. Is like Tesla doesn't really even have. I mean, we don't see Tesla ads because if they want to get the message out, it c- it comes straight from you know the most followed person on Twitter. You know, so there is so much power in having that platform. And then the the communities we're seeing on Twitter around some of these NFT projects, we've incentivized the masses, we've incentivized thousands of people to talk about the projects they're invested in, or they have money in. And so instead of just having the president of your VR company talk about the latest feature update or something, now you have 10,000 people on the ground who who want to talk about, you know, their NFT, why it's cool, why it has value. So a lot to be a lot to be learned there around the power of an audience. And I, I wanted to start this pod off just asking you that question straight off the bat because I thought you'd have an interesting answer. But I would like to start off how I how I normally do with our guests. Can you walk me through how you got interested in crypto originally and where you're at in your crypto journey today? And just kind of a summary so we can give all the listeners an understanding of you know where you're coming at from this. Because I also believe you you were informed about crypto and potentially a player in it very early on through, you know, your connections in Silicon Valley and whatnot. I don't know exactly when I remember reading about Bitcoin initially, but it was probably, you know, my documentation and sort of in writing the the latest was, was April of 2011, roughly, is when I sort of was, was, you know, I have words out there about Bitcoin and crypto and things like that. And, and that was because I, I sort of built Gumroad. I had built this sort of side project. I'm still working on it today. So it kind of succeeded. But in the t- at the time, it was just kind of a weekend project. My goal was kind of this thesis in which everyone was going to build an audience online. And therefore, like musicians, designers, writers, filmmakers, photographers, like everybody is going to kind of sell directly. That was sort of the next obvious sort of step for me. And so I built this tool that allowed for that. We basically allowed for you to kind of like upload some digital content, get a link, share that link on Twitter. Someone can buy, get their download and super simple, super fast. And, you know, Bitcoin sort of felt very kind of cleanly into that. I remember having a conversation with Naval from Twitter, you know, in 2011, around that time, talking about Gumroad and talking about like the atomic storefront, right? Like, why do storefronts need to exist? Well, they need to exist because like you need real estate, right? And like, you can't have like one store per item. Like that doesn't really make a lot of sense, but on the internet, you totally could, right? For a bunch of reasons that didn't play out exactly the way that that maybe we, we thought it would have, but certainly like Bitcoin and crypto was kind of in the conversation around sort of a, a sort of a, a money that was, you know, was not controlled by, by a certain sort of central authority. It was a pretty important kind of component of that. And so, yeah, sort of pretty early. I don't think I bought any Bitcoin up probably until maybe like 2013 or something like that, where I felt I was super late. Like I, I remember going to dinners and everyone was talking about Bitcoin being $100 up from 12 or something a month before. And I was like, wow, it's too late. 
but I did buy some around then and, and, you know, got some stellar back when they launched. And so I, I've done, I've done all right. I didn't participate in Ethereum really at any part of their token sale. Like, I don't know. I think at that point I'd kind of left San Francisco. I'd kind of, my, my sort of journey had been to kind of build Gumroad, turn into a company, raised a bunch of money and then failed basically. And then left San Francisco in the Bay area. And I basically spent like two or three years, like drawing and writing full time. And so I didn't pay ten, ton of attention to tech, missed Ethereum, but then, yeah, kind of participated in whatever happened in 2017. And then now I, I take a sort of a pretty dumb approach to it, which is I just dollar cost average into a bunch of stuff and we'll continue doing that sort of indefinitely. Unfortunately, the way like my sort of situation is set up is that like there's no there's no way I can ever really index too much on crypto. It's effectively impossible for me to do that because the vast majority of my net worth is going to be in the in the company that I founded, which is fiat you know, US dollar denominated. So even if, you know, I put every single liquid dollar into crypto, which is effectively what I do, I basically put all my liquidity into crypto. It's still not enough to, to really make sense until I get liquid, like true liquidity on, on my founder shares. So who knows what will happen. You know, I didn't necessarily plan on asking you this, but since we're talking about the investing in crypto, like right now and how you like DCA, I, I totally... I follow the same approach because I'm not a trader by any means, but how from a mental perspective, like prices are down right now, you see sentiment online, like the sentiment changes like that. How do you, how do you step back from like the day-to-day -day price action? And even knowing, you know, we have impending economic downturns because of all the things going on in the world and, you know, inflation reaching potentially like, you know, a peak. Do you consider those things or do you take this large macro view and still say, this is what I believe in long term. So I'm still going to like dollar cost average along the way, regardless of what's going on day to day. I mean, to be honest, I have no idea what the market sentiment is. Like I have no idea what the price of Bitcoin or Ethereum or, or anything is right now. Like if you told me it's like 60,000 or 40,000, I'd have like no idea on Bitcoin, right? Like I I don't know. So yeah, I mean, that's kind of my answer, you know, is like, I literally have zero clue. You know, I either dollar cost average into stuff or I, you know, I see a cool project by somebody I follow, you know, proof, for example, from Kevin Rose or something like that. And then I buy and I will never sell. Like basically my, I will never sell. And that's it. That's my strategy. I buy and hold forever. And I effectively never intend to make any money on my crypto because I never in intend to sell any of it. But in terms of like a net worth, I think it'll look really nice. But if you do, if you play the game right, you never actually have to sell, right? Because you can always get, you can always use your equity as collateral, right? Uh, this is what people, you know, Elon doesn't need to sell Tesla stock necessarily, right? He can kind of take a loan on his public equities. And so I think if you, if you play the game right, you should never really need to sell. And it's always interesting, like when I go into discords and people are talking about like things going up and down, like I have a, a project, Web3, and you know, you can't talk about price in, in that discord, you'll get banned immediately. There's zero. I don't care about the token ourselves or, or Bitcoin or Ethereum. Like, I, I really just don't, don't care. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I, I sort of think about it, like, we're in the first point oh 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 one percent of the internet. And so like, it's actually you don't need to care about price, because it's like, it's like buying land in America. It's like, buy as much land as you can continue to do it. And you will, you will die insanely wealthy, like, incomprehensibly wealthy like we will all die living better lives than you know the richest people alive on earth today right like it won't even be close and so if that's the case then like why bother with like the you know the the price action on a daily a weekly a monthly basis but yeah i truly don't know like i don't i don't log into my coinbase unless i want to move some money around i just don't really know i appreciate the honesty there and it you know it definitely comes from a perspective where you I think you've had success in your life, right? Where the, maybe the day-to-day -day movements aren't affecting your day-to-day -day finances. Some people, maybe it is, so they're, they're tracking closely, but still that like that philosophy of, I think that this is going to be something that appreciates or has value long-term. So you're comfortable not looking day-to-day. -day. So could you share with me, like, what is your thesis on crypto as a financial asset and like what trend do you think is only going to help like crypto more broadly gain steam in the coming years? Because it sounds like you really see it as a, you know, a long on a long time horizon. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think there are a couple things that really need to happen, but not too many things. I think less than maybe people think. I mean, one is infrastructure, right? Like one is effectively make things faster and cheaper. 
Like that's a pretty simple one. Not easy, but sort of, I think if you can take Ethereum and via rollups or sidechains or other L2, uh, you know, other, other L1s or ZK stuff, and you can just effectively say like, we can thousand X the scale of this thing. I think it'll kind of be like traffic in LA where it'll, 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 it'll effectively never be enough. The sort of easier and cheaper and faster you make it, the sort of demand will always kind of increase like more than linearly to that. And so you'll never really be able to meet demand. And so I think that's like the number one thing that like crypto could do is just to make it faster and cheaper. Um, Obviously, there's the trilemma, et cetera. But that that's sort of, I think, the the big thing. And I'm sure, you know, that's the the vast majority of the people I talk to are, are, are focused on that problem. And then the other thing is is uh, is basically a, a regulatory regime that is favorable to crypto. I think this is a necessity for it to work long term. I think it will work long term. I don't know if it'll take a year or five years or 50 years. Again, I don't really care. I think it's inevitable like Bitcoin and, and crypto will outlast the you know United States of America. Yeah, I'm in no no real rush. I, I think that's the other thing is like I'm very content with my life right now. I do see, you know, like, for example, Gumroad, like in the, in the up market might have been worth $250 million. And then Gumroad in a down market like it is now is probably worth like $100 million. So that's sort of, you know, that's like $150 million difference of which I own the majority of the company. So it's not like I'm not, you know, I, I don't see that happening. I just think it doesn't matter because long term, you know, I, I'm sort of thinking in a much longer time horizon. Uh, and I'm not selling, I'm not buying, right? So so it doesn't really matter. It doesn't it doesn't affect my decision making. But I think if, if, if those two things happen, if there's sort of a, a way to scale Bitcoin and crypto in which, in, you know, so, so basically that every single human being can participate in it and it's effectively free for anyone to do so. I think those two things will be true in 100 years and and, and sort of the, there's a regulatory environment that, that allows for that to happen and, and people can use crypto to kind of, you know, for example, like use smart contracts to do things like mortgages and startup equity and, and loans and DeFi effectively, like all Fi, Fi can be DeFi'd, then then, yeah, I think there's sort of a, you know, effectively what you'll see is sort of a $100 trillion market cap. What are we at now? Like $2 trillion or something like that. So I think you'll see roughly like a 50x in the next 50 years, which most people would consider like a very, very good return, risk adjusted. But most people are, frankly, like, you know, the, and the, the number one problem people have, uh, in my opinion, is they're just super impatient. Most people don't want a 50x in 50 years. They want a 50x in five days. I can guarantee 50x in 50 years all day long. I can guarantee you a 10x in 10 years. Like it's not that hard. By the way, if you you know if you do the math on what a 10x in 10 years looks like, it can be very aggressive if you're able to compound that. This is effectively what Warren Buffett did. You, you know, like his returns on an IRR basis are not that impressive compared to crypto. What's impressive is he's done that for 60 to 70 years, right? If you can take a long view, you can actually really change like the profile and say, oh wow, like my portfolio is up 30 percent. That's an incredible number. Like I, I hope people listening realize like how insane a 30 percent return year over year is. Uh, and when you see a thousand percent, then, you know, you have to understand that how that is not sustainable. That is like definitionally not sustainable. You're taking advantage of somebody or something or some inefficiency in the market that most people just frankly cannot take advantage of. And I think even, you know, I even needed to hear that you know, like, it's kind of, it's something I've been thinking about recently is how people in the, you know, the millennial generation, we kind of, we were, we grew up realizing the 2008 crisis was going on house prices to a lot of my friends honestly are in what i would say is like an un an unreachable territory just given you know current savings rate right now and so people are looking for that thing that is going to boost their portfolio boost their returns and i've seen like myself and even some friends like migrate towards crypto just because of the the return percentage you know when you you hear about what you could get versus the stock market even if you do have 15 20 30 percent realizing like over the long time horizon that's phenomenal yeah i mean if you take a thousand bucks let's say you graduate college at you know let's say 22 with a thousand bucks and you you think you can grow that at you know 30 percent a year and let's say you you do that for 40 years so like you know sort of by the time you're 60 eight or 62, right? You've, you've, you've kind of done that, that, that thousand dollars is $36 million. That's, I mean, that's just the math 1000 times 1.3 to the power of 40. You know, if you have a thousand dollars today and you're able to grow that 30% a year for 40 years, that's, that's $36 million. I don't know anyone who 
thinks that's not enough, <laughs> right? And so I think I, I think that's the other thing. When I talk to millennials, like I, I've, I've sort of had a con- similar conversation with a lot of friends of mine, and I used to believe similarly, like, wow, we're screwed. We're the we're the generation that got screwed. It turns out that every generation feels like they're the ones that get screwed. And you talk to the average eighteen year old kid, they look at a three hundred thousand dollar house and they think, of course, I can't afford that. You know, they think about, oh, student loans should get canceled. All of these things that basically went by the time you you're thirty five or forty none of those things are problems anymore because you are no longer working a minimum wage job. Like these things are that kind of go away. None of my friends who are above the age of 30 have any complaints of which all of them had complaints when they were 22. Right. And so this is just a thing. It's kind of like, you know, when I was, you know, 22, I would like volunteer for Bernie Sanders, you know, you know, and there's kind of the joke that as you get older, you get more conservative or, you know, as you make more money, you get more conservative or whatnot. But the, the truth is like generally people in America, especially like if you, get a job and you invest in index funds, you will do very, 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 very well because it turns out that number looks so small. It looks like, oh, a thousand bucks, that's nothing. I'm screwed. What they're, what they're not doing is like not doing the math on like, well, 10 years from now, that money will have been, you know, compounding and you will, you know, kind of get better and better jobs over time. For example, you go to the anti-work subreddit on Reddit, which I'm a huge fan of. I own antiwork.com. Like I'm a big fan of the movement. I totally believe in, in, in the, the future of work being anti-work. But the average age in that thing is probably 21, 22 years old, right? They also probably live in a city. Houses in America are insanely affordable, insanely affordable. I think people forget because they live in New York and San Francisco and LA and Seattle, and they think that houses are really expensive. They're not. The average house in America is around $240,000, $230,000. The average mortgage uh, interest rate is around two two and a half percent right now. You can get twenty percent down or even less if you want to. You're talking about when you leave major cities and you start looking in you know other places in the country. Exactly, and I I think the idea that people are entitled to live in one of these cities is insane. I think that is a that was kind of a temporary thing in in society, but I I don't think that's that's sustainable. I think you move to a city. I tweeted about this like a couple of years ago. San Francisco is like a college. You move to a college, you do it for four years, you build up a network, you learn a bunch of stuff, and then you bounce. That's what has happened. I think COVID kind of accelerated that. I tweeted that pre-COVID, but this sort of answer to wealth, happiness, and you know, is kind of all the same, which is like, if you take a long-term view, you'll realize like you're actually in a phenomenal position. And when you realize you're in a phenomenal position, you'll start making better decisions. Because if you think you're not in a phenomenal position, you're going to start to make really bad decisions because you're like, oh crap, if I don't make a bunch of money, you know, by you know, in six months, I'm screwed. And that's actually how you make terrible decisions that mean you don't get there. Right. But if you can say, Hey, I need to be, I need to have a million dollars in my bank account in 20 years. You can come up with a very, very reasonable, very, very boring plan in order to do that. Right. Totally. So, well, I think one of the, maybe one of the trends you kind of hit on in your location argument just there or, or statement is that now we can move geographically in ways that maybe we couldn't before because the nature of work has shifted, the digital economy looks different than it used to. Just kind of similarly how I asked you about your thesis on crypto, talking about NFTs specifically here, do you see them as really revolutionary in terms of being able to transfer and store like value digitally and and not just a, a form of currency, but in the form of access or information or community like are you seeing that trend as also being important to this this geography ability that we're able to shift around you know what i mean the way that i think about it is that nfts are about scarcity i mean if they're not scarce then there's no really reason real reason to use nfts in my opinion and so it's really about scarcity and so i I, when i think about what what should be scarce right because i think part of technology is abundant right is to kind of make it unlimited Right. Like, for example, like every single person on planet Earth can like watch a movie playing a new movie, you know, like watching, I don't know, whatever, like a Titanic. Right. And I think everyone should be able to watch that movie effectively for free. And they can do that because of BitTorrent and piracy and or they can purchase it on on whatever thing they they want and pay for sort of that convenience. But I, I personally believe information should not be scarce. Information should be free. And so I believe, for example, that music should be free. It should not be scarce. Everyone should be able to consume it. And, and by the way, this is what has happened. It has already happened and played out in the music industry. Music used to cost money. And now effectively all music is free. If you're paying for music, you're choosing to pay for music. And the way the artists make money is via scarcity, which is concert performances, merchandise. 
and attention, right? Like meeting greets and things like that, right? All of these are kind of scarce sort of things that they're able to do. And I, I don't see that going away. And so I think when I when I look at NFTs and things like that, I sort of think of like, well, these sort of the things that are scarce will remain scarce. They've been scarce before the internet existed. And they will, you know, be scarce like a thousand years in the future, things like time and attention. And if that's the case, then NFTs, I think will be will be really great fit for all those sorts of things, right? So for example, like, you know, a plot of land is very scarce, right? And so I think a plot of land will 100% move into the crypto land. Like that makes total sense to me that like, that, you know, I own a house in Portland, you know, I have some, you know, a title, but the title even, you know, it's, it's not even technically like no one knows who owns the land. Like the, you know, the America is a very weird place. We just kind of went and conquered land and took stuff and from, you know, and like, it's, it's a very kind of complicated thing. So when you buy a house, you're hoping that you own, you're buying it from the person who actually owns the land, but you don't actually know. And which is why title insurance exists. You need to get insurance because there may be a case in which someone shows up and says, Hey, actually, here's some proof that I, you know, I bought this land from this person in, you know, 1842. And therefore you didn't know it. It was never on the, on the sort of state register. And, you know, that's why you have to get, kind of get title insurance. And so I think all of that stuff, when you can have, you know, the sort of idea of provenance, I think makes a ton of sense. And I think all of that stuff will kind of move on chain, quote unquote, you know, sooner rather than later. There's still, you know, problems with that, for for example, securities loss, right? Uh, so so it's not, you know, you don't get a lot of the value that you'd be able to get from DeFi if you do that. But, but I think you'll see a lot of that. And then I think ownership is still pretty interesting. So I, while I don't think music NFTs will work in the sense that, people buy an NFT and that NFT will allow them to consume the music. I think NFTs will be used by musicians in order to build community, to have scarcity, to do these kind of meet and greet concert, you know, things. And there may be some sort of convenience value to it, right? Where if you have the NFT, then you can like consume it in their, you know, custom app, you know, wallet player, et cetera. I do see that, but I think of it kind of like Spotify, which I think it's like people forget that you can pirate, you know, anytime you pay for, for any digital thing, you're choosing to pay for that. Because this is all available for free on the internet, right? Especially if it's non-interactive. If it's interactive, like a video game, you might have to pay. Like, we haven't figured out a way to do that. But that's going to change too, right? And like, soon everyone will be able to play any video game ever created for free. And and this is just the nature of, of everything, right? We used, to, we used to think that like building software was valuable and IP and patents were valuable. And now we know that like they're basically useless. Like no one is really, you know, no startup is valued based on their kind of software portfolio. I think that's actually a really great thing. Um, because I think inherently, like these these sort of trademark IP things are inherently unfair. It's kind of who showed up first gets access, right? It's like who showed up first gets to own the land, right? By planting a flag in it. That's how I think about it. Yeah, I like what you said about bringing the music NFT full circle, you know, talking about scarcity. And I agree that I don't think that music NFTs really answer a need in terms of consuming music, but talking about ways that NFTs can allow creators to create deeper connections and engagement opportunities with their fans. So, you know, you're you're deep in the creator economy, building, you know, building Gumroad to allow creators to sell their products to fans or audiences in an easier way. But and I'm I'm definitely not as deep in terms of the full Gumroad platform as you are and what you're seeing. So I'd like your perspective here. Like that enables the seller to profit off their digital product, right? Is there that need though to go a level deeper and create those engagement opportunities with people? Do you see that being valuable from a future business pipeline? Like once you have those connections established, then there's an opportunity to sell product B and C, or do you think people want to get closer to the people that they're buying products from? Because I see that as a, a really interesting way for NFTs to change how we do things right now. Just you're not you're not reliant on a platform to give you features and access to how you can you know message your the person who bought it or retarget them through an email campaign now you have their ethereum address and you can create experiences around that you can airdrop them new digital goods so you just create a lot of new avenues for connection we give everyone on gumroad like the the email address of every purchaser which is effectively that right like it's effectively it's actually even better than that because you can't push notify someone's Ethereum wallet address, <laughs> but you can send somebody an email. So I'd argue that like what we do is actually in Web 2 is actually far better than Web 3. The Web 3 benefit that we cannot do in Web 2 is that you can like more easily sort of connect and, you know, services together, 
right? And so you could say, for example, like, hey, if you're, you know, if you're in this group, you can also, you know, you can join this pre-mentor or something like that, right? So I think the composability of, of crypto is what's interesting to me because I frankly think Web2, every individual Web2 property is far better than the Web3 equivalent. Like it's not even a competition. That's not how Web3 wins. Web3 wins because it's a hive mind. It's kind of like uh, the human playing with, you know, fighting a thousand ducks or whatever. <laughs> like, do you want to fight one horse-sized duck Web 2 is like a horse-sized duck and Web 3 is like a thousand duck-sized horses, right? I don't want part in either one of those fights. <laughs> I know, yeah. And this is why I think a lot of people like struggle to see the value in Web 3 because like they just look at it and they're like, I don't get it. You're all just like waving a bunch of hands and there's a lot of money going on. And I use Spotify, but I don't use any of this stuff and no musician I really know uses any of it either. Well, the reason is because it's going to just take a lot more time to figure out because it has to happen in this very bottoms up way. For example... Gumroad, you know, we support credit card payments and we actually did work with Twitter originally. It's like, it's like 2013 or 2014 to do buy on Twitter. So there was a credit card in Twitter. You could hit buy, check out on Twitter. And that was powered by Gumroad actually. And it was really cool. Got a nice, you know, New York Times article about it and totally failed, totally failed. Why? Because the user experience was terrible because we had to convince all, you know, do all of this stuff specifically with Twitter. And if we wanted to do the same thing with Facebook, we would have had to do the exact same stuff with Facebook and they would have had a different standard and they wouldn't have been compatible. And so effectively the UX just sucked and it will never be good because every single company wants to own the credit card information. To your point, you want to own that data. And so the answer actually is none of us get to own the data. Gumroad should own the data. Facebook should own the data. Twitter should own the data. We should all publish to a blockchain. And that's how we kind of, we should build Ironically, Facebook figured this out and spent a lot of time and money doing this with Libra this and Diem, et cetera. Like this was their entire strategy. And this is kind of why I think the regulatory component is so important here. If it happened, it would have been an amazing thing. It would have been an amazing thing if Facebook, uh, Twitter, PayPal, et cetera, got together and said, hey, we have this standard. This is what PayPal has been wanting to do for, you know, since 1999, you know, like I think everyone knows what the future looks like. I think the building it and getting it to scale and getting the governments in on it, that is what's really, really, really challenging, right? And so that's where I see the opportunity is to kind of the composability, the sort of lack of a winner-take-all mindset, I think, is what's what's really important and missing in Web 2. But in, the, in terms of UX, I think Web 2 is far better. Totally. And I, I do think that all of Web3 users would agree with that. Totally. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here for sure. Yeah. And, and you know, I guess what I'm excited about is now that it seems like the energy is here, the realization that the composability is an important aspect to add to these products and applications we're building. And now over the next couple of years, let the UX catch up to, to meet where you know, the current technology stack lies, then we'll start seeing, you know, some beautiful innovations. So, you know, I'd like to talk about a little bit about what you've been experimenting with in Web3 with the the project. And, you know, you tell me, is it a project? Is it a community? FWeb3? Like, what's your goal with this project? And like, what inspired you to start building in public with it? Totally. Yeah. So, you know, I've been, as you know, as you kind of talked about, like, follow the Web3 stuff relatively closely in the last couple of years. I invest in it. I have a lot of friends in it, et cetera. And frankly, you know, I was getting a little bit of FOMO, especially as an investor, because um, even though, you know, this stuff is going to take a long time, you kind of need to get in on the ground floor, right, generally, and and, and wait a, a long period of time. And so I felt like I was kind of just thinking about, okay, like, I'm a pretty decent sort of Web2 investor. Why? Probably because I build stuff and because people in Web2 might know me or what I've built because I've been doing it for a while. I have some sort of credibility. I have some experience. People might want me on the cap table. All of these things don't apply to Web3. I'm kind of, you know, there are some things that do apply, but I think generally, you know, people want Web3 founders on their cap table. People want people who've been investing early in Web3 projects on their cap table, et cetera. And so I felt like, okay, how do I do this? Well, there's unfortunately no shortcut. Like I have to do what I did with in Web2, which is build stuff, you know, for fun, uh, mostly with the goal of just learning and, and experimenting and trying out new stuff and being forced to figure it out. I had never deployed a smart contract, for example. I assume most venture capitalists have never deployed a smart contract. However, like to me, that's kind of insane, right? That's kind of like saying I'm going to invest in startups that I've never like shipped an app or built a website before. Again, people do that, but I think it's sort of ill-advised. You would be a lot stronger if you kind of knew what you were doing. And so I, you know, I was just like, okay, 
well, I'm busy, right? Like that's great, but like everyone wants to. It's not like you know you have to make the time. And 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 honestly, what I noticed was February and you know Feb and Web have EB in common. And so basically, I was like, wait a second, like you know February Web Web three. And so I just came up with this name, and I felt okay. And you know, sometimes you just need a stupid reason, right? Like you know, the good reasons didn't work on me, so now I needed a stupid one to motivate me. And I just was like, okay, what I can do is I can spin up, like, basically I can just tweet out and 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 sort of tell my audience, like, hey, I'm going to spend February building in Web3. We're going to call it Web3. We're going to build some sort of game together as a sort of a forcing function to learn. And we have effectively 28 days to do it, right? The shortest month of the year. And that's what we did. You know, we, we kind of built this game. I had really no clue, like, what it was going to do. I just kind of would tell people I'm building a game and we just kind of riff back and forth. And over time, like, you know, I saw what Wordle was up to and I was like, oh, maybe we can build something like that, like a very simple game that feels hard, but is actually pretty easy, which means it's kind of a very satisfying experience. It's kind of pretty social. It's pretty lightweight. And so that's kind of the approach that we we ended up taking. And so over the course, yeah, honestly, like very surprised at, at what we did. Like I had never, ever done really anything in Web3. And, you know, within 28 days, we basically, you know, spun up a new token on Ethereum. We moved 10% or now 20% of that token to Polygon. We set up a faucet so that people can get that token for free. And then we set up a Matic faucet so people can turn that Fab3 token into Matic so they can effectively have gas to do all of the stuff on, on chain with. So it's effectively a totally 100% free game. And then people can complete nine dots. That's kind of like the current version of the game where they can they connect their wallet, they get some tokens, they send those tokens to somebody else, they burn some, they swap some for any token they want on Uniswap. And the last challenge of, oh, they mint an NFT, things like that. Uh, and then the last challenge of the game is they deploy their own smart contract to the blockchain. So every single person to win the game, sort of the final boss is to deploy a smart contract. Yeah, and, oh, and then when you complete all those steps, you can get verified by a judge and then get a thousand commemorative tokens and then also an, a trophy NFT. So there's 333 gold trophies. I believe they're all taken now. Uh, there's 3000 silver ones and then the rest will be uh, sort of, you know, whatever the number is, 6667 will be uh, bronze or copper trophies. I'm working my way through the game right now. It's really interesting the, you know, the steps that are involved to complete and then having the final boss being the deploying a smart contract, I think is an awesome move. It's, Getting more into the weeds from a technical standpoint is something that I, I've been personally trying on my own too. And sometimes it can be overwhelming just to start from scratch, but to have like, you know, some of those walkthrough steps to guide you through, I think has been nice. Framing it as a game too, right? I think is really key. Yeah. We'll have the link to that for anyone listening in the description if you want to check it out yourself. And I'm curious, was why was the focus on education? And now it sounds like you might have just stumbled on into that. Or was that, you know, intentional? Because a big talking point right now, everything crypto is we need education on why it's important, you know, how you use it, how you and from the really the ground up, we need education. So was that a, an intentional decision? You know, I feel like I'm a relatively competent person. And I've spent a lot of time like building software. And I still felt like I, I didn't have a good grasp of a lot of the mental models that you kind of need to, to make sense of, of, of crypto. And so, yeah, it was kind of just selfish to be honest, right. Of like, what game would I have wanted? Like, you know, ideally I wouldn't have had to make this game. This game would have already existed. And there are some games like rabbit hole has some stuff and, and crypto zombies, you know, and, and things like that. It all felt like almost too playground like for me. It's like, no, I want like I, I want to scare people. Like I want to make people feel uncomfortable. Like I want people I don't want to just set up a sandbox and do stuff, right? Because the problem I find there is that you complete these tutorials, you think you know, and then you come up with some business idea and then you realize like, oh crap, I have no idea how to actually build this thing. Right. And so I think there was kind of two components that were really important. One was that we were actually going to build a real mainnet game that was going to cost some amount of gas to play. And I didn't even know in the beginning, like how to solve for that. I just knew that it was important. And actually it was a community member, uh, Brian uh, Schuster, who came in and said, Hey, just so you know, like all of these dots are going to take 20 bucks a piece to complete if you keep this on ETH. So like we should figure this out. And I was like, pitch me, you know, I don't know. I have literally have no idea. The broader like crypto community is so focused on Ethereum. And I think that 
that the messaging gets out. Like ETH, Ethereum blockchain rules all. But once you start really thinking about the scalability and how we get millions of people to interact and use, and you start thinking about the fees, I'm glad that you made that decision because going to Polygon really does make it accessible for a lot more people. Totally. I mean, ultimately, and this is something I always try to remind the people who I know who are either in crypto actively or have invested in crypto and sort of think it's the future, but don't really know why people hate on it so much. And the reason people hate on it so much is like really simple, which is it's freaking expensive. <laughs> like, guess what people hate on? They hate on expensive things because they can't buy them. They can't participate in them and they feel excluded. And when those things go up in value, they feel even more hurt because they didn't get to participate in that. They didn't even have the choice. People talk about climate change and this and that. Literally, I guarantee you, none of that matters. That's all a red herring. It all will go away the minute you solve for, for price and accessibility. If you make it accessible, guess what? No one cares that the internet ruins the planet. No one cares that cars ruin the planet, right? Or maybe some people do, but generally it's not the t time of the day. It's mostly the fact that people, you know, feel like excluded from it. You know, that's, that's just kind of the truth, I think. But yeah, it was, you know, ETH, ETH is sort of 20 bucks a transaction or five bucks or whatever it ends up being, but it's multiple dollars a transaction. And I think it is really important, whether that be through rollups, whether that be through uh, side chains like Polygon, whether that be through, you know, maybe a different approach, whether or, you know, some people say, well, Ethereum is going to do proof of stake and that's it. And, game, you know, that's enough. Right. Like there's a lot of sort of different opinions are being thrown around. I don't know what the answer is, but I do think at least and this is, you know, the nice thing about building something is I can just tell people this is the decision we made. You can speculate all you want on, on you know, zero knowledge versus validity stuff versus rollups versus optimistic rollups versus this and that. I can just tell you, look, like I had to make a quote unquote a business decision and I chose Polygon, right? And I know from talking to our CEO at Unstoppable Domains, Matthew Gould, like we he's definitely of the mindset too that we make these decisions now and we continue evaluating because things are going to change again and we're going to do whatever's best for the end consumer. And and that might change even if it means, you know, changing infrastructure along the way. So Yeah. Totally. I, I also think there's a hardware component here that I think many people don't talk about, which is ultimately the solution a huge part of the solution is that is Moore's law, right? Which is which is like you know, 10 years from now, if you think about that compounding, right? Like you do that to your laptop today, like your your laptop in 20 years will be a super computer, right? Like there might even be a nuclear reactor in it, who knows? And if that's the case, then guess what? Like a lot of these problems won't be things because, you know, just like, for example, like we will not be bounded by energy consumption. That just will not happen. Human, humans will not peak energy consumption usage. That is that is a recipe for the world ending. What will happen is is we will figure out ways to deal with the number with the amount of energy that we could we create, and actually, like the energy we create fifty years from now will be thousand x, you know, ten thousand x what we do today, right? Like it should be because like I I want that life. Like I don't want to reduce my energy consumption. No human wants to. But yeah, I think I think you know all of these things will change constantly, reevaluating. I mean, the beauty of crypto is that you can kind of move things from one place to another without their permission, right? And so it's it's you know, and and I I told the community I was like, look, we have ten million tokens. I'm going to take a million of them and put them in Polygon. And if Polygon implodes for whatever reason, fine. You know, we have ninety percent left. <laughs> you know, we might move ten percent onto Starknet, right? We might move ten percent onto uh, Solana, right? Like we're kind of totally open to to experimenting and, and and you know it's it's funny like there's a kind of the meme like no roadmap but it's kind of like that at, at web3 which is like i set the roadmap for kind of like the first 28 days but now it's kind of up to the community like if someone says hey i want to fork hey like solana has agreed to give us a million bucks in exchange for some tokens if we build like the solana expansion pack right and it basically take the same game but sort of theme it to solana and make it work on solana right it's like for me, it's like thumbs up or thumbs down, like thumbs up, right? Cool. Here's 10% of the supply, go crazy, right? The other thing I I'll point out is that one of the reasons I focus so much on education and on building, uh, you know, both of those things is because that's, th those are the people I want to surround myself with, right? Like, I don't want a community of 100,000 people who are just talking about price. I want a community of 100 people who are talking about JavaScript and Python and Ruby and Rust and, you know, like the technology, because ultimately, like, that's why I love crypto is because it's a new technology. 
And so I want to surround myself with those kinds of people and that kind of attitude. And so I kind of want to, you know, I, I use the game and, and sort of the things that we build as a way to to do that, right? Like I, there was someone in the Discord who was upset. He's like, I, I don't think it's fair that you make everyone deploy a smart contract, you know? And and to me, I'm like, that's such a patronizing thing to say. Like, you don't think people are capable of deploying a smart contract? It's not that, you know, it's not that crazy. And and we've had hundreds of people do it. And so now we at least have the data. I was a little worried, to be honest. I was like, is this too hard? You know, and it, it certainly is not easy. I should, you know, it's a game. Again, like the nice thing about a game is that it doesn't have to be easy. Sometimes the final boss takes a while to beat. Exactly. Yeah. Like the if you frame it like a startup, and, and this is why like Web3 is a side project. It's not a startup. We're not raising venture capital. And why I believe as a product, it will be far better than its competition, quote unquote, because all of these other startups are focused on growth. And so they will not build hard games. They will make games that anyone can play. Anyone can win. They will do partnerships in order to like juice their numbers, which is all fine. But like as a as a technologist, like rabbit hole is not interesting to me. Uh, it's very clearly meant for people to just click around and earn some tokens. And I don't think I've learned anything playing that game. We got a, only a couple minutes left, and I really wanted to hit the the types of economic utility. Uh, if we can kind of rapid fire that, so you shared a, a doc with me that you were kind of iterating on around your thesis around. NFTs from an economic and cultural standpoint, and you outlined four types of economic utility. I would just like to touch on each of those real quick because it's super interesting. So the first one is form utility, then time, place, and possession. Can you walk me through each of those briefly and talk about how Web3 can improve on each of these? Totally. Yeah. So the simple sort of framework is that there's sort of four kinds of value that we kind of economists and sort of economics 101, you know, used to kind of frame utility value of, of a product or a service in the, in the marketplace, right? One is form utility, which is effectively like, let's say you take a cocoa bean, right? Turning that into chocolate, right? You've take you've turned the form and made it more valuable to the consumer and you can charge effectively charge more money for it, right? So anytime you are able to change form, I think that's sort of a type of utility. I think in Web3, you see this because, you know, you can, you know, every chain is different, right? You get the utility uh, is very different. You can take a Web3 token and you can turn it into something else or you can wrap it. And so I think NFT creators can think a lot about like the form utility, right? In that way. Time utility is, is really simple, which is save time, right? Basically, if something takes 10 minutes and you can make it take five minutes, like that's five minutes that you can effectively has some value to the end consumer, right? So this is like, you know, the value of a, of a, of a you know, I mean, you see this all the time in comparisons, like Solana says, we're super fast to finality, right? That is kind of effectively time utility, the way that they framed it. There's possession utility, which is like, you get, you know, effectively you get to do something that, that you weren't able to do before. Like you weren't able to buy a, a, a nice piece of fine art from an artist that you like. Now you can. That's sort of possession utility. And I think that's also really important. One thing I love about crypto is I, I believe in the sort of the future being one liquid market where like everything just gets bought and sold in this one liquid marketplace, which I guess DeFi is that, right? That's kind of another way of talking about it. Okay. So there's form, time. Oh, and place utility, right? Which is, this is... Less relevant, though, I think maybe if you mental, you know, you can you can say the place utility is like, well, let's say I build an app, but you can only use it if you're on Ethereum, right? And that you have a bunch of users who are not on Ethereum bringing it into wherever they happen to be. It can be really valuable. And so if you're if you're building, I, I always think about this, like, what are you what value are you providing? And it should be one of those four. You're either creating you know, you're either changing form, creating value that way. You're saving people time, creating value that way. You're bringing something closer to a group of people. You're, you're creating value that way, or you're, you're making it possible to, you know, give access to a group of people that may not have had access to it before. And I think the best businesses do all five or all four, excuse me, right? So Amazon, for example, save time and, you know, two day shipping, money, things are cheaper, form, you know, pretty obvious and possession, right? And so, and they're a massive $2 trillion whatever dollar company, right? And, and what does Google do? Google is primarily a time utility, right? Saves you time. Uh, they do less of the other things. And so, yeah, I'm always kind of just thinking about that. Like, how do I save people time, make money, save money? And yeah. Awesome. No, I, I like the breakdown of those different types of economic utility. Lots more to think on there. So to wrap up, I want to do my one, two, web three with you. Three rapid fire questions. The third one, just knowing you, I think you might have a little bit more to say on. But the first one is... Can you name an influential Web3 creator, entrepreneur, collector who really has inspired you in the space? Yeah, I really like, who's that punk? Punk 6529? Six, 6529. Yeah, he seems really, really, uh, really smart. And yeah, I, li I like a lot of what he what he has to say and what he what he collects. And I, I think he he explains like art history. 
I think he really kind of helped me grok like kind of the importance of, of art history in, in this whole conversation. Sweet. And favorite NFT? Favorite NFT? Probably an X copy. I think X copy is probably my favorite artist in the Web3 space. Probably not too controversial of a thing to say. I don't know which one. I think the most recent Putin one that he did was pretty darn awesome, though. Yeah. Are you in the Proof Collective? I am, yeah. Nice. Yeah, very cool. And then third question, in five years, what's the craziest thing you think we'll be doing in the metaverse that we're not really talking or thinking about yet? I don't know, something something uh, sexual, to be honest. I think there's going to be, if you, if you look at a lot of like the, the sort of the, you know, web one, web two, web three, the sort of, you know, like, for example, the largest creator economy in web two is, is not Patreon or Gumroad or Substack, it's OnlyFans, right? Uh, and so ultimately, humans have very few things that they need and want. Uh, if you think about utility value, we're animals. And so I think I'm sure that's already happening in Web3, but I think figuring out how, how to make it mainstream. And I, I, I imagine that, you know, five years from now, that will be a huge, a huge sort of topic of conversation, right? There's no, there's no, there's no creator economy company that gets reference in rap songs, for example, right? Besides OnlyFans, right? And so I, th- I think you'll, you'll see that that sort of the merge of those things happen. I think it may take some more time either because of cultural differences between maybe who's currently working in Web3 or whatever, or, oh, or just like, again, like the regulatory environment is already tricky enough. Like you may not want to add so many layers to it, but I do think that's sort of a, an inevitability. And, and often like when I, when I see new tech, that, that is a, a sort of an application of it very early. You know, it's often that and music are often like the two earliest, uh, earliest yep. ones in terms of industry. Great. Great. You know, and if there are any rappers listening out here, I got like one line for you. If you want to drop Gumroad in your song, used to be waiting for DSL to load. Now I'm selling product on Gumroad. So, I mean, take my line. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. (laughs) I appreciate everything you share with us today, Sahil. Can you just plug your, where people can follow you and keep up with what you're building in this space? Totally. Yeah. So you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at SHL three letters. And my project du jour currently is web three, which is on Twitter at fweb3.x. Uh, actually, the URL is probably better. So fweb3.xyz is probably the best place to go. That links out to Twitter, Discord, GitHub, all open source, totally free, always looking for people to play the game, help build the game, contribute docs, do office hours for the you know new players, all that good stuff. Great. Well, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us today on the crypto NFT Web3 space. I know I learned a lot. If you like the episode, please drop a subscribe on YouTube if that's where you're watching. And if you're listening on Apple or Spotify or your favorite streaming platform, it would mean a lot if you subscribed and followed along. We're dropping episodes weekly. So with that, we'll see you next week. Peace out. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please leave us a review, subscribe, and share this with your friends. And remember, this conversation doesn't have to end here. Tweet us your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. I look forward to hearing from you, and thank you so much for listening.